everyone. Welcome back. This is Castlin and Always Acting Up. This is the podcast where I share all of my personal stories and journeys as an actress in the entertainment industry. You're going to learn some tips and tricks along the way, some secrets to success, and some industry conversations. Speaking of, I do have a guest here today. He is a filmmaker, and we're going to talk all about filmmaking and acting with directors. But before we get into that, I want to give a shout out to all of you guys who have been following on this podcast. Those of you who have checked in on my blog, if you haven't done that yet, make sure to head over to my website. It's castlinrose.com. Or you can also reach it at alwaysactinguppodcast.com, alwaysactingupblog.com. And there you can find all of the elements that help you to succeed, to make you look, feel, and perform better in front of the camera and in life. So for you guys supporting me, you the best. As I mentioned, we have a really special guest here today. It has been a long time coming on this show. There's so many things to introduce him with. I feel like I feel like the list could really go on, but he is actually one of the producers of this podcast. He is a filmmaker, and we're going to get into like the details of what a filmmaker actually is. He has a film currently on Hulu right now called Takeout Girl. If you haven't seen it, head over to Hulu right now. He's the winner of the American Black Film Festival, of a film, you know, winner of like numerous, numerous film festivals. I can't even tell you because there's so many. So I'm going to go ahead and give a welcome to Hassani Johnson. Hi, or Hassani Mustafa. My bad. Thanks for joining us. Hello. I like the applause. So I made a big mistake. I said Hassani Johnson, but you're going by Hassani Mustafa. Can you clarify this for me really quick? Yes, I can. Um, Hassani Johnson is my actual first and last name, but Mustafa is my middle name. Uh, my mother passed a long time ago and I spent my whole life kind of being embarrassed of my middle name. And as I started to achieve more as a filmmaker, uh, I always wanted to honor the name my mom gave me cause she loved my middle name a lot. So whenever someone talks to me about filmmaking, they have to remind me of my mom. I think that's so cute. And does it mean something? What does it mean? Yes. My name, <laughs> uh, my first name is uh, Swahili in origin, and it means handsome and loyal. And my middle name is Mustafa, and it is a derivative of Muhammad in Arabic, and it means the one sent by God. My mom was a hippie, so. Uh, I, th- I think a lot of our moms were hippies, especially back in this time period. So, Hisani, you are a filmmaker. I personally know that you do everything. Can you kind of describe what exactly is a filmmaker as opposed to, let's say, just a director? Not just a director, but, you know. Well, I always say that um, I'm not a filmmaker. I'm not a director because I just, at this point in my career, I have to touch too many aspects of the film. I have to write it. I have to location scout it. I have to cast it all because of budgetary reasons, but I also have embraced it in terms of just using being a part of each phase to better understand the story I'm trying to tell. And uh, a lot of directors that I know, their journeys kind of begin with getting a general concept and understanding of the story, but letting other people personally take care of it. And they just approve what's being seen. And then they sit behind the monitor they work closely with the actors and they sit behind the monitor and post and they work closely with the editors. And I've just never had that sort of, um, for lack of a better word, privilege. I've never had the privilege of only doing the parts that I enjoy the most. I've always had to 
uh, fight just to get to the parts I love and then afterward fight to make sure people can see what it is I'm trying to make. Now, that could be a journey that a lot of other people have as well. But a lot of the times when you're making no budget films, it feels like it's just happening to you. So. Right. Well, right now you're, I'm going to say sort of in the indie game. Do you think that in the future when you're directing, say, Marvel movies, Disney movies, like big movies like that, that you're going to stick to just one aspect of filmmaking? Or do you still kind of want to have your hands like in all of it? I really enjoy writing the things I shoot. Uh, I think it'll be a really cool challenge to create stories that other people wrote just to see how I react to it, just to see if there's a difference. If somehow I put more into directing because I didn't have to write it, I'm looking forward to finding the answers to these things. But I also really want to be a part of a lot of different tasks because ultimately I believe the other members of the crew respect you more if you've done their job before. And you understand how hard it is. If you know what it's like to work a 17-hour day, and heaven forbid you have to do that, and your crew follows you on that journey, they may follow you with a lot more respect knowing that you have done their job at 17 hours, and you're asking them to do it. You're not asking them to do something you was you haven't done before. So when you look them in the eyes and you say, like, I'm doing this to tell the story, they know you done it to tell the story from their position before there's an empathy that gets them to pour themselves into what it is you're trying to do as opposed to them feeling like a pawn in a situation in which you are going to look good and no one knows they ever existed but they paid the price for it so uh, you know i've always wanted to be a leader not because i had enough money to get people to follow me follow me but be because People see what I was able to accomplish starting where they did. And if they if they want to have ambition beyond that, they, they know that I'd be a guy who can tell them how to do it. I actually think that's a really great idea. And I kind of always say this to people in general regarding like customer service, restaurants, whatever the case is. I think that everybody at least one time in their lives needs to step on the other side of things they do or enjoy, whether that be working at a restaurant, being a waiter or doing retail, even working behind the camera. If you're an actress working behind doing crew, I think it's always really important to see what goes into making all the pieces in the public pieces in the puzzle sort of come together. I agree. And, and so you mentioned uh, starting filmmaking. I definitely want to get into the acting aspect of it, but can you tell us first how you kind of got into filmmaking? Did you go to school what was that process like for you? I never went to school for it. Um, <clears throat> I uh, I grew up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and unfortunately, I didn't have a lot to do. Uh, I couldn't afford a lot of toys. Uh, didn't have easy access to going to cool places to spend my time. So what I would do is I would just kind of uh, latch onto some of my teammates and spend times at time at their houses and. One weekend, one boring, boring weekend, I stayed at a friend's house that we didn't have anything to do, but his neighbor had a camera. So we spent the entire weekend making a movie. And I remember at the end of that weekend, I went home with the tapes because for the other guys, it was just a way to burn time. But for me, I wanted to finish it. And I connected two VCRs together <clears throat> and I would press play 
and then pause on the one with the blank tape, play with the one where we taped our stuff and just edit the film like that. Three days passed and I didn't have enough, I didn't have any bandwidth to think about the fact that I would have got, I could have gotten robbed on the bus ride home or shot uh, walking from the bus stop to my, to my house, which is something I thought about every day at that point. I didn't think about how hungry I was, which is something I did every day in my house. <clears throat> I didn't think about how much other people had and how little I had. Nothing else mattered but the task at hand. And I was just so enamored by the process, so happy that I knew I had to do it for the rest of my life. Yeah. So it seems like it was a creative outlet for you to sort of escape your reality. Yeah. It was something I stumbled into because uh, you don't expect something to like, I didn't know that I was the sort of person who needed to be occupied completely. You know, like that's why I do another reason why I handle so many different facets is personally, I think I have the sort of brain that gets a little bored if it's not being challenged from all angles. And maybe it's just the mindset of a person who has had to overcome so much just to end up at the starting line with everyone else, as opposed to just running the race like everybody else. Um, maybe I need the challenge in order to be fully engaged, but Lord knows when I am to this day, um, when I was making my feature film, Takeout Girl, there were times when I was driving home from a, uh, our shoot days and I was like, man, if the cops had showed up to set, and and I hate to say this because I didn't realize it until after I was done. I'm the only black crew member on Takeout Grill. So it occurred to me that, number one, I'm the only black crew member on my film. And number two, it, that meant that the cops showed up uh, as the director. I have to talk to them on this no-budget film. And it also kind of seemed to me that I would be the first person to get shot by the cops if they had a problem with anything mm. we were doing and decided they wanted to make an issue of it. But I didn't think about that while I was shooting. I didn't think about that while I was editing. It was only during my downtime. So to this day, filmmaking still gives me a release from a world that has yet to match even the bleakest of stories on, um, uh, uh, on screen for me right now. Like the world is a lot more mm. scary than making movies. I'm going to go ahead and have to say, yeah, that sounds absolutely terrifying. And I've seen Takeout Girl, and I've actually had the privilege of having a, a small part in it. And there is a, just a little bit of, it's not like a violent, violent film, but do you want to go ahead and tell us briefly about Takeout Girl like, really quickly? So we kind of have an idea of why you would have those feelings on top of mm -hmm. the obvious. Um, Takeout Girl is the story of a 20-year-old Asian-American woman who gets the bright idea to allow the local kingpin to move his drugs in her takeout food bags so that she can use her cut of the money to invest in her mother's restaurant and get her mother the health care that she so sorely needs. And uh, over the course of this, we explore themes like race. We explore the themes of poverty and um, we explore the idea of criminality and and we challenge that. We challenge the idea of criminality and what people think is criminal and how to treat criminals as well, because not all crimes are the same. And here in America, especially po you know, post-Trump, it's a very they try and make everything black and white when in reality things are a lot more gray, you know. Uh, the 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 have nots 
for example, immigrants, you could throw them in a category of they need to do it the right way. They need to, you know, come through this way that come through, come to this country the same way my immigrant family did and, and work their way up. But what if they're refugees? What if going home means they're going to die? What do you do then? Just turn your back to them? We do that, not just to immigrants coming into the country, but people who are already here, you know, to, to, mm-hmm. to see budget breakdowns where they're sending billions to other countries. And we're starving right in my neighborhood I grew up in. You know, it, 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 it really does touch upon some really, really complicated and nuanced themes. I feel like you're the absolute perfect director for this particular project. And were you the writer of this project? I co-wrote or? this film. I co-wrote this film with Hetty Wong, who is the lead actress and producer. And uh, it was a cool process. We were on the phone uh, for hours, most days, just kind of outlining things. And then I would go and write. And then she would read and we would brainstorm and write some more. It took us about a month to get the first draft. And then we competed the script for a year while doing pre-production on the film. And then about a month before we shot, I did a final rewrite and, and then we did principal photography and we had pickups. So I used that opportunity to rewrite the pickups so that I can just squeeze out a little bit more goodness during that shoot. So it was perpetually writing basically. Yeah. And then everything else that you do regarding the film pre in the middle and then post. It's a lot of a lot of work. Okay, and so with Takeout Girl, you have Hedy Wong, who is the lead actress. And the conversation I kind of want to talk today is about acting and acting with directors. So when you go into casting a project, do you have a clear idea of what you're looking for within the characters? Or do you know it when you see it? Um, it depends. Um, with Takeout Girl, the approach was different. This was Hetty Wong's first significant role in anything. So I wrote the supporting characters to be played by established actors and ex- actors who had an extremely strong rapport with me. I wanted to know that they had that veteran quality, that leadership quality where the younger, less experienced actors could look to them for how to behave and set a tone uh, and, you know, essentially build the right culture on set, a nurturing culture, a culture where of patience, where the, the veterans really made it okay for the younger actors to find the character on set. And, and if that meant doing a lot of takes or being patient, that's what they did. But that leadership quality of theirs, like even in terms of improv, they knew me well enough to knew they could play with certain lines, which gave the younger, less experienced actors more time to, you know, more uh, boldness to try some things too. So in terms of knowing when you see it on set, there was a lot of times I knew it when I saw it. But in terms of the casting process, uh, Hetty Wong wrote it for herself as a vehicle because there isn't enough projects for her type out there. You either, you got to be the you know, we expect Asian Americans to be very proper. Um, we expect them to be crazy rich at this point. We expect them to be highly educated and we miss out on a whole culture of, 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 as a black man, I didn't know Asian Americans suffered like I suffered until I met Hetty, which is why I was the perfect person to tell this story is because I could relate to it. It felt like she came right. from where I came from. 
So uh, we had her uh, in that role for that reason. Uh, I wrote the the antagonist, if you want to call him that, Lalo, played by uh, Ski Car, for him because his personality is just so one of a kind. And um, I brought on uh, Teddy Garces, who plays Hector, uh, essentially because of our rapport. I knew he would take something that was not as juicy on the page and make it something you couldn't forget. And then from there on out, it was just an organic casting process. Whichever actor took the role in their audition got it. Uh, They brought something better than what was on the page to the audition. They were the most likely to be cast. And would it matter if someone were a different race or gender than you originally were casting for? Could someone just walk in the room and, and perhaps just blow it away with their audition and then completely change your mind on what you had in the, of what the character was supposed to be? Yes. Um, there was a particular role in Takeout Girl, the role of Crystal, who was written to be a family member a cousin of the lead character, Tara, the niece of the mom, the cousin of the brother. It was a family unit running this uh, restaurant, but we saw this blonde uh, white girl with blue eyes and her cat, her audition was so authentic and real that for a minute we were like, we're just going to play this as a girl from the neighborhood who is probably grown up going to this restaurant and grew up with Tara and they treat her like a cousin. And uh, somewhere along the lines, another actor came in and brought an X factor that we vibed with more. But yeah, race bending or or flipping, gender flipping. Um, the a standout character in the film of Takeout Girl is uh, Chewy, and that was played by Lizette Hunter, who is a makeup mm-hmm. artist here in Las Vegas, who stepped into the role. Um, I say when I when I thought when I had this epiphany that Lizette was the right person. I likened it to like an old Looney Tunes cartoon where like Bugs Bunny would be really hungry and he'd look over at Daffy Duck and Daffy Duck would turn into like a roasted chicken. I saw Lizette (laughs) in her normal wardrobe and I looked at her and then I, I choloed her out in my head and was like, I think you can do this. And she did too. She understood it right away and she blew us away in the role. So you know, it, it was all over the place. It was traditional casting. It was inspired decisions last minute. And it was writing for actors and being lucky enough to get them. Yeah. And so it kind of sounds like with Lizette, and I, I'm getting this idea, it doesn't matter so much your experience and your level and how long you've been doing this than your talent and your skill and if you are right for that actual role. Uh, I think so. The My philosophy is that an actor has two careers. They have a professional career in which they are solely focused on getting work that is at a studio level, network television, cable television, national commercials, and major motion pictures. And then there's indie films where 98% of the filmmakers working don't have the privilege of casting anyone they want. They can't afford everyone they want. They don't have the availability to be in your film. So we have to be a part of the process of building new stars. The opportunities are still open. Mm. That's why I always believe actors need to, part of an actor's job as a part of their independent film career, not their professional career, is to be at film festivals looking for the next big thing. I mean, 
if, if you look at the film Bottle Rocket, like the 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 the, uh, the Wilson brothers were launched by that film, and they worked with that director and were roommates with him and grew up with him. Therefore, you know, all of their careers blossomed at the same time, and they all continue to work together to this day. Those things still happen. Chris Nolan's ca- cast the same people all the time. That's why you see people working together so frequently because their careers grow together and that trust grows together, that rapport. And it's really hard to get in. It's really hard to get in for new actors because uh, it's a small club. You know, it's a very small club. And you get into that club by building your own space in that club with your own marquee director and your marquee writer. You become their marquee actor together. So I think actors very much overlook the power they have uh, because if you're really about it and you're really talented and you really believe you deserve to be seen, you really believe you're a star, then you should be able to be part of the reason a filmmaker like me becomes who he's supposed to be. Your skill plus my skill equals success. Teamwork. You mentioned something that I thought was really interesting. You said uh, we all grow together and you keep sort of not recasting, but you use a lot of the same people that you trust. How would somebody who's not quite in that circle, what could they do, yes, besides going to film festivals, to sort of stand out, whether in the casting room or, I don't know, making a funny video online? Like, what could someone do to get into an inner circle? Be great in everything you do. I I think young actors are horrible at knowing when to say no. I think there, I think there are actors who are so desperate to get out this creative energy that they sometimes act in films they shouldn't be in. And not only have they wasted their time, they don't have great footage to show for it. And if you use that footage and a filmmaker like me sees it, it could paint the context of, of my perception of you for the rest of the time I know you. You have to work your way out of a hole, which is why sometimes it's good to say no. Only do what puts you in a great place, uh, and uh, perception-wise, because perception is reality. This is the show business, and if you're showing me something that is not excellent, then it's a waste of time. the The next biggest thing I think a lot of young actors don't do that would instantly give them credibility is. Uh, so only present top-notch material, the dopest headshots, the dopest demo reels. And if you have to take three years to save up to get that stuff, do that because ultimately three years plus another two years of showing that to people and getting great roles is shorter than 10 years of getting nothing. Mm. Uh, because you only are showing the work you booked and the work you book is done by filmmakers who can't display what you do well. So your materials plus, you know, your materials have to be amazing. Don't rush into that. And then just being available, being dedicated to what you do. When it comes down to your professional career, hit your quote, don't compromise. But when it comes to indie film, understand that being a part of something great on an independent level, and winning acting awards and, and inching your way up the ladder uh, and, and, you know, using an indie film. To me, 
that is synonymous with the idea of suffering. You're not going to get paid very much. You're going to put in more time than, than the filmmaker tells you you're going to. If they say you're going to shoot seven days, be prepared to shoot nine. Uh, it's all right. about looking at the work that a filmmaker like I do as your work. Whatever it takes to make sure that I finish the film, you need to do that. And it sucks that you're taking on that much responsibility. You should maybe see if you could be a, a producer on the film if you're going to be putting that much time and effort into the film. Especially if you're the lead and you're not getting paid and you're putting in more time than you need to. You have a value to that time because professionally, you know what it's worth. But whatever right. puts you in a position to have a great piece of art out there making the rounds on the film festival circuit, being seen by other managers, being seen by other agents, being seen by producers, and most importantly, other filmmakers like the person you found. That's just your success kind of compiles, compounds onto itself and multiplies. And before you know it, you're that person everyone knows for one thing and one thing only. You were great in that thing. And everyone wants to be a part of the next great thing you're a part of. Right. I totally understand that. And that makes a lot of sense. I think investing in yourself goes a little bit further than your classic headshots and classes. And I think that's really hard to really think about that there's a little bit more investing that goes into your career than step one, two, three. And I, I was listening to what you were saying, and I almost feel... Like in the beginning stages, it's a little bit of a catch-22 because in order to get good footage, you have to have footage and it sort of builds upon there. So I think, I think you do sort of have to grow, start from the, start from the bottom, get what you have, and then keep building to get better and better and better. At least that's what I feel. Sort of. I mean, you have to have good footage. That speeds it up. But ultimately, being great matters. Being great mm -hmm. matters. Mm -hmm. Like, and again, we're talking about, there's a class system, system for everything. Especially totally. with actors. Are you the sort of actor that thinks being cute and memorizing the lines is good enough to get you ahead? You won't get cast. Because as a filmmaker who really values his own writing... I know why I write, wrote something. I know what I'm trying to have the characters say. And if you miss that context and take the scene in a totally different direction than it's supposed to go, it doesn't matter how cute you are and it doesn't matter how off book you are, your audition means nothing. So, uh, again, it's, it's a, you know, preparation, understanding, having a very incredible grasp of literate, literary works. Because when people write, they're writing with symbolism. They're writing with metaphors. They're writing with, you know, double entendres and everything else. And it's even harder for you because you tend to not know what happened before and what's happening after the scene you're given. You have to be that much better at deciphering what the scene is about and communicating not just the words, but what the character means. That's what gets you the role. Because ultimately, you are a piece of the storytelling puzzle. And the words, without meaning, there's no story. So, you know, mm. you get good footage as a result of following that major rule first. You know, 
while you're, you know, because everybody gets an opportunity. And if you're out there scouting film festivals and you have no footage, but you're a go-getter and you look great or you look like the character and you can audition well, I'm willing to say most filmmakers are good enough guys and, and we're, and we enjoy people enjoying and, and, women. Yeah, and women. We're good enough guys and gals to enjoy when someone showers us with praise for our work. So your door is open. We like you. Then all of a sudden you're, you want to be a part of that work mm -hmm. and you seem like you have a great attitude and you've auditioned. Well, you're in the conversation, which is really all an ask actor can ask for being in the conversation, because if, even if you don't get the role, that doesn't mean we don't remember you as great at what you do. You know, a film is such an intricate puzzle that's constantly moving. You could audition for the lead and miss it because you're the wrong race. But then someone who is a, uh, auditioning for a role a little bit older than you drops out and last minute we need someone. And all of a sudden, there you are. This person is chomping at the bit to take the role. They look great. They will knock it out. And it'll just play different because she's a little bit long, younger or he's a little bit younger. The opportunities are there, but they aren't if you botch the opportunity. If you botch your shot at showing what you got, either with bad footage or a bad read or lack of preparation or just not being in the right place at the right time, which for a lot of actors is where filmmakers are. And I say it's a better mm -hmm. system because ultimately when you go to festivals and you meet us and you, you know, whether it's virtual or not, and you go and then you follow us on Instagram and you build a rapport, <clears throat> it is so much easier to connect from here to here than to go from actor to director than to go actor, casting director, producer, you know what I mean? Then maybe filmmaking. Mm, like I like that. There's only one person who really has to be sold on you when it comes to your independent career. And, and that's the filmmaker themselves. And if that filmmaker crosses over into a pro career, there's a good chance you do too with that filmmaker. Anyhow. So I, I love the idea of sort of <laughs> skipping the line in a sense. What would you suggest? How would people approach you and sort of build that connection? Is it like, hi, my name is Castlin, put me in your movie, or whoops, oh, oh hey, uh, it's Castlin, it's just me interrupting my own podcast. So rude, I know. Well, I just wanted to let you know that Always Acting Up podcast is sponsored by We Audition. What's that? Well, it's the website for actors made by actors. It's the platform where you will never have to struggle to find an audition reader ever again. And the best part, you can be a reader too, where you have the chance to read with real working actors, see what they're doing in their auditions, see what their setup looks like, all while practicing and getting better with your own cold reading skills. Oh, and did I mention? You can make money on there too. Say what? Well, I guess it might be time for you to check it out for yourself. But before you do, make sure to enter in my promo code, ACTINGUP25, for 25% off your subscription for a lifetime. That is ACTINGUP25, where we can hang out and help each other with our own auditions. See you on We Audition. What would you suggest? How would people approach you and sort of build that connection? Is it like, hi, my name is Castlin, put me in your movie? Or do you just sort of like you said, connect on Instagram and then just sort of be present all the time? I think it's the wrong question to ask. Like you're not like, you're not trying to connect with me. You're trying to 
get me to connect with you? Why do you mm. like, and also why am I good enough for you to talk to me? What do you like about my work? That's where the connection starts. If you genuinely like my work as opposed to genuinely want to be in something, then the connection will come through what you both feel strongly about. The filmmaker obviously feels strongly about what they made. They spent years with it or however much time. They're pushing it on the film festival circuit. They needed to tell this story. You connected with it. Why? Because you're like-minded? Because you want to tell the same types of stories? Mm. Because you just got to be a, you know, because you got to be a part of telling that type of story or playing that kind of character or getting that part of your life out there. So if they ever need someone like that again, you know what I mean? They understand that you get it. It's not necessarily about what can you give me and what can I give you? It's about the connection. It's about trusting you because you get it. So that uh, totally uh, makes yeah. sense. Yeah. So like, the conversation even becomes more organic if you're like, oh my God, this film changed my life. And I have to tap you on the shoulder and tell you, in this scene, when she says this, does she mean this or this? And the filmmaker goes, what do you think? Mm -hmm. The conversation rolls downhill from there. But if it's, hi, I'm Castlin, I'm an actor. What can you do <laughs> for me? That doesn't work. So in short, yeah, you know, uh, genuinely connect with them. Ultimately, they're supposed to be good enough for you, too. So if you don't click hard with their work, you don't need them. I think that puts a little bit more clarity on what that actually looks like when casting or producer, filmmaker, whatever, says you need to be able to connect on a certain level. Not just, hey, we're Instagram friends. Like, I like to make pasta, too. Yeah, you know? Like I think there needs to be a genuine, actual connection of art. And I think we overlook that. All the time, myself included. Correct, correct. Uh, and it's so much easier to stay in touch. Because, I mean, how easy is it for you to connect over the, the work and then all of a sudden Nicolas Cage comes out with a film that you know that filmmaker likes and you just have a reason to follow up with it. Hey, you see that Nicolas Cage film? What'd you think? I knew you would love that part with this. You know what I mean? Hey, and then it's, hey, I made this film, a short film by this filmmaker. I think you're really going to love the work I did in it because it's a lot like this. Check it out. Mm, you get what I mean? Letter. Now you got them following yeah. your career, which we want to do because we need as many wonderful actors as we can get our hands on. We want to make films for the rest of our lives. That's a lot of actors. Yeah. So That's again, like at some point you're going to be on deck. It's just a matter of what do you do with it? And I can also sum up, uh, everything by just go slow from the moment you walk up to a filmmaker or a filmmaker walks up to you. And this is, this is my personal mindset. When I meet an actor, I really want to work with, I assume it's going to be maybe 18 to 24 months, two years before I actually get a chance to work with them because I'm not very mm -hmm. fast at coming up with ideas for one, who knows when you get enough money to make something and I got to know you. Right. I got to know you. Do you know how devastating it would be to write something for an actor and then they just leave the business like so many actors do? And now you got to find someone to do this thing that was made specifically for this. I don't even know most, you know, you can't even know an actor's in it for the long haul till you hang out with them for a couple of years. Right. But that's just my yeah, that perspective. Would be 
No, I, I would be absolutely devastated, especially if I had this story in mind and I had this particular person and then they sort of bounced and moved back to Oklahoma. And I totally understand why people go, it, it it's a hard business and it does, it absolutely makes sense. So I definitely get it. Okay. And so you sort of mentioned people leaving the business and it would be devastating for your film. What would it take or what would someone have to do to be recast in a film or has there ever been like a situation where you and an actor just weren't getting along, like things weren't gelling? What would that situation sort of be like? Like, what would we have to do that would be so bad? Well, it's time to go bye bye. I'm glad you asked that because this is an opportunity for actors to know how often filmmakers get it wrong, which is important. It's important to know that filmmakers get it wrong all the time. And if they, if we get it wrong, that means you still have a chance. Even though you didn't hear back during callbacks, even though you didn't have a producer session, even though the film has started filming, you never know. I've personally made the mistake of casting actors who just weren't who I thought they were. Uh, I cast them for really shallow reasons. Oh, this person's done this thing. It's going to help me get more views. And then I cast them and they're horrible to my crew and they're horrible to the other actors to the point where the nice. other actors came up to me and say, Hey man, handle this. I was being urged by my cast and crew to fire this actor because they refused to shake anyone's hand. They refused to improvise. They didn't want anyone in the green room with them. I've had scenarios like that. Uh, another scenario that'll get you recast is getting paid and not showing up to do your acting, what? which is something I've <laughs> Who had does an that? Do. Uh, oh my God. We had an actor in Takeout Girl who um, negotiated his pay, which wasn't a lot because it's an indie film, and then made it clear that, and I wrote the role for this actor, this actor I considered a really good friend. And he he had the role, and I fought for him to have the role, and then I, I got his money, and then he informed me that if he wasn't paid his entire salary up front, he wouldn't be able to do the film. Then he actually came to set, and while we were shooting, he was rehearsing for another audition he had that night on set. But when we started shooting his scene, he didn't know the lines for our film. So that wow. whole night, we had to toss that footage and move it on, move that scene to another night. And then for his day two, his second day of shooting, he just didn't show up. And no one knew why or that? where he was. And we finished shooting that night at 8 p.m. We shifted everything around, got a lot of shooting done, had a great time. Didn't hear from him until like 9 p.m., which was an hour after we were already home, basically. And then he informed us he was at the airport and he was ready to shoot, which none of us have confirmation of. We don't know if he was just saying that or if he did it, but that's a wild scenario I've had. Um and then, yeah, that'll get you recast. And then, uh, I've had actors get recast just because of a lack of communication. I've had to uh, try and get wardrobe uh, uh, options from them and like sizes, and I'd lose them for weeks at a time. And uh, because I have so much writing on the 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 you know the the film, at some point I'm forced to move on and. And I end up recasting people for those reasons. So lack of communication. You can't be chasing people. Yeah, because after can't be chasing a while, people around yeah, for wardrobe. It gets interpreted as you lost interest. 
and working. Because us indie guys, we know who we are. We know we're not big time. We know we're not paying well. And we know that you're taking a risk. We're taking a risk on you. You're taking a risk on us. So with a lack of communication, it can look like you're getting cold feet. And we have every other actor, every crew member, every location, every producer, all of our choices and combined effort hinged on you. And you, we can't get back to you. We can't hear you. We haven't heard from you. We have to move on. So those are things to avoid. You know, I, I'm almost wondering, like, is it just that person in particular, like that's who they are as a person? Or I know this may sound terrible, but I, I you know, people have egos and I, I've heard this before. Do they maybe look at it as like, oh, this is just an independent project. I don't want to be a part of it. I'll, you know, take it with a grain of salt. And if it happens, it happens. Meanwhile, like you guys are the future. I mean, you will be growing. You're going to be in bigger movies and studios at some point. So um, I, I, I don't know. The first example of the actress who kind of came and really made the entire cast and crew uncomfortable when I asked her to leave, I asked her to leave because I felt like my, I, 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 you know, she needed to go because she made everyone uncomfortable. But I also, I didn't say you're fired. I didn't Donald Trump her. I said, Hey, I think maybe this film isn't big enough for you. You know, I don't, I think you've done a lot of bigger things and this is a real step down and I can feel that. So I, I won't take offense if you don't want to do it anymore. And she implored me that it wasn't that. But it really, it felt like she was just trying not to make us feel worse than we already did. But mm. I would feel, you know, I knew what it was. I knew that she was slumming it by being in my film, at least in her head. And she didn't really want to be there because she was making it very, very difficult. Either that or she was just an, a more nervous performer than any of us could have predicted. Uh, but it was a very nurturing set and it was, it was a really great shoot. And that was the only hiccup on that. With the other actor, I really think his life was spiraling out of control. And although... Bad timing. Yeah, uh, the actor who just didn't know his lines and didn't show up, I think his life was spiraling out of control and he may have had a thousand and one good reasons for why that was a difficult time to shoot in his life, but he doesn't have a good reason for not communicating that. So that, mm. I, you know, I Bingo. still take that hard. And the the uh, the person who just lost communication, um, they were just working a lot and didn't realize how urgently they needed to reply. And that's a person that I feel pretty close to. I, I like that person. Like, I can't wait to work with that person in the future because I cast her for a reason. She's great at what she does. And she's gone on to do even more great stuff. Um, but it just... In her mind, she has apologized profusely about that. She she cried when she realized she got recast. She stayed in oh, great man. touch. She always asked to to hang out when she's in town. And I hit her up when I'm in town to see if I if we can sit down finally. So like it doesn't all end bad. You can repair those things, but it takes a lot of it takes accountability. Like if you really oh, drop the ball, the first thing to do is acknowledge that you dropped the ball. Don't blame it on anybody else. Don't, you know what I mean? Like don't, Right. It, it's a, it's, you know, it's insult to injury if you do that. And she didn't do that. Not, not even an ounce of it. And I would happily cast her in something else. Oops. Yeah. That's, 
Great. Um, quick question. You mentioned uh, one of the girls you recast because she was making everybody uncomfortable. Was she just being rude? Like, can you define what that means? Well, to you, she didn't do it to me. But mm. uh, the day started with her coming in and we were warned by other actors who knew her that we better have coffee and these things on set or she was going to get angry. So we catered, um, you know, even though it was like afternoon, <laughs> I think her call time was two. And uh, we, we changed everything to have everything she wanted in the green room. And we thought that would make things go smooth. But as soon, you know, very shortly after she got there, the crew members started to trickle into my room where I was transferring footage and we're like, Hey, just thought you should know. And there was separate people saying this. Uh, I went to shake blankety blank's hand and she wouldn't shake my hand. She ignored me. And that happened three times. And then uh, my lead actor came in and, and gave me a gesture of like, no, this ain't working. And I'm like, what is going on? And then a really wonderful actor who I was working with, who is the sweetest person ever, he grabs me as I'm walking toward the office to talk to her. And he takes me aside and he goes, um, Hassani, I wanted to let you know that I wanted to rehearse with her. And you know how we've been shooting several days and we could play with the lines. Well, I, I, I told her about that. And she was like, I'm not saying a fucking thing that's not in the script. And, and I was like, she said that to you? And he said, yeah. So like now... I don't want to offend her. So like, do we go on book or do we do what we've been doing? And I, I hope I didn't make her upset. And I'm like, wow, she really scared you. And, uh, and I, and then my producer, who was also my lead actor kind of pulled me aside and was like, get rid of her. <laughs> and <laughs> he, he told me flat out, he was like, I don't want her here. He was like, I'd rather sh like shut down today or shoot what we can and pay for another day, but I'm not, I don't want her here. And it was just my job as the director to do the dirty work at that point because I didn't have an AD. And I did. And what was horrible, I mean, it's horrible, but it's also kind of funny. She got in her car, and as soon as her car left the parking lot, my entire cast and crew clapped. Ooh. Like this? Yeah. They, <laughs> they, they clapped. So that's a sign. Oh, no. That's how you make people uncomfortable. You know, and I, I think um, it's kind of like what you were saying earlier as actors and filmmakers or directors, we sort of all grow together. The crew does too. I think we forget about that a lot, but a lot of the times, you know, there's no job postings for a crew. It's, hey, who do you know? Who do you mm -hmm. know? And I cannot even tell you how many times I've been on set and I knew like multiple people there and their friend was right there with them because it's all connected and who you know. So I think that's really something to think about. And you mentioned rehearsals, which is actually something I kind of wanted to briefly talk about. Do you prefer to do rehearsals with your actors or do you want to do it on set, figuring it out? I always do a camera rehearsal uh, just to make sure that the setups are working and to see how much movement there's actually going to be or to rehearse a camera move. So there's at least one. But as far as making the actors rehearse for non-technical reasons, I stay away from it as much as possible. Uh, to me, we're all professionals. Even if you're at, even if you're a beginner, I try to give you the respect I would give to a professional by allowing you to take the rehearsal process into your own hands. 
I think it's perfectly okay for an actor to, especially on an independent film, um, an actor who genuinely wants to put their best foot forward with this role and make it something that propels their career forward to ask for the contact information for their scene partner, for whoever's in the scene with them and see if they can organize a rehearsal on their own. And the reason being is on set, I'm going to bring what I need to bring to set. And I'm going to bring my vision. I've been living with this script. I've played this movie in my head before we shot it a thousand times. I know what it is I want to do. Your job is to bring me something that may be better or something I didn't think of. And I love when the actors get together and they work out their own kinks. And that by way of that rehearsal, I, I tend to see that actors have a lot, they're a lot more comfortable altering their stuff because they know they, they, the lines are in them. They've done them enough where if I ask them to, to do this with a little more flair or add an emphasis on this word instead of this word, well, they're not both now figuring out what the lines are and making the changes I want. The lines are just flowing. Their only focus is on, focus is on the little change that I asked for from what they rehearsed. Right. And I feel like you're really good at this. Is that because I've heard um, from, you know, whatever, little birdie, because you have a background in acting yourself, do you feel like that has helped you? It might. Uh, I have a background in acting mostly because I didn't. <laughs> so as a filmmaker, if I have a camera, as long as I have a camera or a microphone or a computer to edit with, I should never be broke. I should be able to make money and take care of myself. At one point in my life, all I had was me. So <laughs> I had to use whatever skills and talents I had to make the money to buy the cameras and the tools I need to build a business. You know, like some people grow up and they have a really nice house and they're going to have that house when their parents pass. They have a trust fund. They have people to pay for college for them. I didn't have any of that. I only had my face and my voice and I used acting to try and build. Uh, that was my base. That was what I used to build with. And I guess an added benefit is that actors respect my opinion because they know that I've been in their shoes before. And they know that I may have a, a strong sense of timing, uh, comedic and dramatic. Uh, and I know what it's like to audition. And that um, right. it's almost like I speak actor, I guess, because I, I used to be one. I don't consider myself a good one at all. And I don't consider myself particularly dedicated to it because it was a means to an end. But I if, it gives, that. Yeah, if it gives me a, a, a benefit, in terms of talking to actors, I'm glad I did it. I think you're being modest, though, because you were pretty on your way up with your acting career because you were on shows like Glee. You auditioned for Glee before we even knew what Glee was. And I know you were in some like national commercials. Where else could we potentially, if we were going to do our research and some digging, <laughs> where else could we see you as an actor? Or what else did you book? I don't know. You have to figure yeah, that one okay. out. <laughs> all righty okay and so what are you what kind of advice do you have for some filmmakers working with actors would you recommend filmmakers who maybe have never 
kind of been in the actor's shoes, would you suggest them taking an acting class? This is where stuff gets weird. I just don't feel comfortable anymore telling other filmmakers what they need to do. Like, I'm not even in a position where I can make films whenever I see fit. You know, like, I'm not... In a, I'm not in a place that others should be aspiring to right now because I'm aspiring to move beyond where I'm at. Uh, so like, uh, you know, uh, advice that's, that's like so presumptuous for all I know, mm. some young filmmaker could be doing it right. And my stupid advice pushes them off track. <laughs> and I worry about that because again, like I said, until I reach my own goals, it just feels really weird. And again, like I've done it both ways. There's some situations in which I don't, I don't think I need to work with the actors because the character in the film is awkward or withdrawn. And if they don't know me and they don't know anyone else on set, they might be a little bit more awkward and withdrawn in their performance. So I think it's case by case, you know, and it also depends on the type of director. Like there are certain directors, you know, who really don't necessarily have to be people, people. Interesting. I think we often forget as well that the other side of the camera and crew, the directors and the creators, you guys are still trying to figure it out as well. Like there, I don't think there's, like in acting, I don't think it's like step A through Z. And I don't think it's a clear path is what I'm trying to say. I don't think it's a clear path for anybody in this industry to get to where they actually want to go. I think it's figuring it out as you go and networking and seeing seeing what sticks and what works. It's a good point. I'm glad you picked up on that. And also, we're strange characters. Um, I, I like directors... I think it's up to an actor to assess who it is they're talking to. Like it's a 50, 50 crapshoot. But if you're watching a visual effects film where there's only one actor and, you know, all the other actors are animated and this and that, it might not be a bad guess that that director isn't that great with people <laughs> that they like computers more than they like people. And that should, uh, that might, change the way you approach them. You might want to come in with a little bit more apprehension, give them a little bit more time. Um, if you see a filmmaker who's making nothing but hardcore action films, uh, you know, again, the content, the content they make should inform not only how, why you approach them, but how you approach them. You know, you can like romantic, romantic comedies. You might have a more outgoing, you know, uh, uh, um, filmmaker and, and you should have less resistance, you know, and these are all presumptuous. Like I said, it's 50, 50, but the content does kind of tell you. And, and, and again, if you do pursue a relationship with these filmmakers, understand who it is you chose to work with. You know, if, if they make films that have explosions and, and car fights and martial arts, they may not be the type that wants to hear your input because they're the type that are responsible for anything that goes wrong on that set. And if it goes wrong, they have the right to have that stuff go wrong or look bad because they messed it up, not because you did. So they may not be, you get what I mean? Like you have to yeah. all, take all of that into consideration when you're working with, with filmmakers, like you, you have to be down for them 
as they are to be a part of something great that they do and that they've been doing since before you met them. In order for them to be great, to a certain extent, you have to let them be. That's a totally interesting thought process that I don't think I ever really considered, especially when you mentioned that maybe the film work, filmmaker has more animation, CG, whatever. Maybe he, maybe, maybe they are a little bit more quiet and reserved. Yeah. Like maybe that's who they are as a person. I never even considered the different approach. And I have one more question um, before I wrap this up. You guys, I think we're probably going to have to do podcast another time, part one, part two, part three, and part four, because I have a lot of questions I want to ask regarding filmmaking. So my last question before we head over to the moment of positivity, now that you're a filmmaker and you are behind the camera, is there anything that you've sort of discovered, realized, learned that you wish you would have known when you were an actor now that you're behind the camera? Anything I wish I would have known as an actor? No. I was always a filmmaker. I was always a filmmaker just playing (laughs) as an actor. It made acting easier to think that way. Um, I I, I feel more comfortable giving actors advice because I'm not an actor. And it's just me observing and I'm behind the camera. I give you jobs. So uh, I think actors would do better if they didn't care as much sometimes. Like, I think I did well as an actor because I, I, I really wasn't as invested in the long term. I just wanted the money. And uh, also like uh, I did jobs the way they were supposed to be done. Like I wasn't trying to uh, fulfill myself creatively as an actor. I was trying to get the money. So if a, if a director told me to stand here, I wasn't like, but I was right there in the last shot and my character wouldn't do that. I stood where I was supposed to. And that, that singular focus for me, it put me in a position where uh, filmmakers uh, looked at me as like incredibly reliable. Uh, one of my last gigs and one of my life-changing gigs as an actor was uh, I booked the a national campaign for Boeing. And I always yes. tell this story. I was, I was gonna, I was gonna, I was gonna interrupt you and ask you if you could tell this story. Cause I'll this is one of my story. favorite stories and I feel like everybody needs to hear it. So whatever you're doing, you guys stop, listen, pause, come back. This is a story that you need to hear. And it's absolutely mind blowing. Okay, go. All right. So I am on the precipice of making enough money to quit acting and buy my gear and really start my endeavors as a filmmaker but the stakes are high, you know? So I'm auditioning and I used to be a Marine and Boeing, uh, the company Boeing, they only make national commercials every three to five years. And sure enough, I get called in for an audition because Boeing develops military equipment. Um, long story short, I booked that gig and I go to set and I have a high fever. My girlfriend drove me to set. I wasn't feeling good at all. Plus I had to wear all the military fatigues in the early part of summer in LA, uh, out in the desert. And the first scene we're shooting was, uh, me shooting, uh, me at the, at the front of a platoon, uh, the front of my unit as helicopters passed. And I'm supposed to look up into the sky majestically. And they have these giant fans blowing fake snow at us. Well, the fake snow wasn't 
it was it was a hard material, kind of cottonish. I said it was like asbestos because uh, <laughs> it, it, it wasn't melting and it wasn't like organic. It was literally like hard, not hard. It was like cotton floating through the air, little pieces of like cottony material. And as you looked up majestically, they blew this stuff in your eyes and it would just sit on your eyeballs. And for me, I decided the moment that first piece of whatever hit my eyes that I wasn't going to blink. And in two takes, they got the shot. I go down and I get my breakfast burrito and I'm leaning over feeling horrible because my fever won't break. And I hear screaming from the director. And okay, I take another bite, more screaming from the director. And I walk over with my burrito and I hear, <laughs> I hear, keep your fucking eyes open from the director screaming at whoever is shooting national commercial number two, because they're shooting two different spots. And I hear action one more time. And I hear, fuck it. Someone go get me Hassani. And I see someone, the AD walking down. I toss my burrito to the side (laughs) (laughs) into the trash can. And I head past the actor who just got fired and I replaced him. And in that moment, I booked a second national commercial because I kept my eyes open and let the asbestos stuff fly into my eyes. (laughs) (laughs) And um, from that point on, I went home, found out I made both commercials and for a good three or four years, I got paid $3,000 per commercial per quarter. And I didn't have to have a job. And it was all because that guy couldn't keep his eyes open. <laughs> and, Sucks. and like that, that was the money. And and like my girlfriend and I were sitting and it was weird because I forgot about the commercial. I hadn't been paid. I wasn't sure if it was going to make air. Turns out it had already made the air. And because I moved, my residual checks were just stacking up at SAG. And I, when I got <laughs> my new information, I had a stack of residual checks. Yes. It was insane. So that was my base income for like three or four years. I love that story. I I mean, the poor actor, like the other guy who was originally cast at it, at, at this, you know, this, this lead role, I cannot even imagine how devastated he had to have been to be in I, I know how devastated and- he is. He's a good friend of mine now. Oh, no. <laughs> I still talk to him all the time. Say thanks, dude. I, I'm sorry this. I'm sorry you couldn't keep your eyes open. But yeah, they were throwing, you know, blowing crap in your eyes. I mean, you guys go home and see if see how long you can keep your eyes open with <laughs> mom or someone throwing flour into your face. It was worth it. It was 100% worth it. I'd do it, I'd do it again. I, I would do the, a commercial for that guy right now if he asked me to because that money was great and it was worth it i was sick my fever broke a little bit later on in that day when we were doing the breaching shots uh where we're trying to break in it was an urban warfare environment simulating iraq and we were busting indoors and like sending robots in and stuff and by that time i felt perfectly normal my fever broke because the heavy stuff i was wearing it made me sweat and one of the best days of my career my acting career was one of the last days too that's amazing. Boeing, anybody, if you're listening, Hassani Mustafa is here and he wants to have 
crap thrown in his face. Anyways. <laughs> okay, Hassani. So we are at the end of my podcast here. And at the end of every episode, I like to end it with a moment of positivity, maybe a favorite quote, words of wisdom, something that keeps you going during those hard times. I'd be honored if you had something to share with us. Uh, my favorite quote is, uh, don't let your wins get to your head and don't let your losses get to your heart. I just heard that recently. Yeah. Uh, fighter, uh, Anthony Joshua said it, uh, I love mm. boxing. Anthony Joshua said it after he lost his fight to Andy Ruiz and then he came back and he beat him. But he's him saying that so quick. I was like, wow, that's me. That's my life. Like, that's what I have to do. Like, and it's a constant struggle, but, uh, but it's been really helpful. And then uh, I just finished Will Smith's book a couple weeks ago and something stood out in that to me too. And it was the, the story he tells about his dad and having to build a brick wall for his, dad, his dad's business. His dad said, don't focus on the wall, focus on the brick, lay one perfect brick. I'm writing a feature right now and it is so hard, but every day, I tell myself I just have to lay one brick and it makes it less intimidating. And when you work in the entertainment business, perception, again, perception is reality. If you make your goals bite-sized, you'll get to them, I think. But I have yet to get to mine, so what the hell do I know? I, I think you've, you're quite accomplished. And one of the themes I've noticed on my podcast pretty much everyone has said it. It's always tenacity and persistence. And I think, I think because you've literally been doing this since you were what, 10 years old, making your first movies, VHS, mini, mini VHS tapes. I think at some point, at some point, I think your goals are, you know, right around the corner. If, if not even, even closer than that. We'll see. And his sonny, you said you're uh, you're working on a feature right now, a script. Uh, anything else in the future for us, for you? Right now on the film festival circuit, I have a short film produced by you uh, entitled hey. Blunt. Uh, it is gotten into about 15 film festivals. It's doing really well. And uh, uh, I'm hoping it gets into a bunch more before the end of next year. And yeah. I am writing a feature film called The Beautiful Brain of Billy Bendecito. And I plan on shooting that into first quarter next year. And yeah. I'm always making stuff. I'm always making stuff. I'm you always really trying are. to make stuff. Always thinking about making stuff. I and I'm always there for you on this podcast. Oh, fabulous. We here at Always Acting Up really appreciate it. And lastly, how can, if somebody wanted to reach out, they have some questions regarding filmmaking, acting, whatever the case may be, how can we follow you? How can we stay in touch? Where are you at? My address is, no, I'm just kidding. Um, my, uh, <laughs> my, uh, my, uh, um, social media on Twitter, I am at Hisani, H-I-S-O-N-N-I. And on Instagram, I am at Hisani J, H-I-S-O-N-N-I-J. Perfect. And you can find me at Hisani.com too. Perfect. Well, Hisani, thank you so much for joining us here today. I think, uh, as I mentioned earlier, we're definitely going to have to do more episodes to get into further conversations. This has been fabulous. Everyone, thank you so much for joining us. Make sure to like, comment, and subscribe. Uh, CastleandRose.com. Pretty much everywhere where Hisani said, just 
type in Hassani J, Hassani, and then go over and type in Castlin, Castlin Rose. You'll find me. Hit the little subscribe button. And yeah, I think we're all set. Catch you on the next one. Oh, what, oh, put your comments below, questions below. He's making gestures. I'm not really sure what you're I was pushing to. the subscribe button. Oh, thank you. Does that look like thank pushing you. the subscribe? There we go. That's better. Yeah, it works. Okay, and subscribe. Thanks. See you guys.